Hi, I'm the Ish Girl, and you're listening to episode 71 of In the Middle of It, the podcast where parents and teachers can find ideas, strategies, and resources for connecting with teens. Hey there, I'm Amy, also known as the Ish Girl, and I am so glad that you're with me today. Now, if you're new here, welcome, and if you've hung out with me before, I am so glad to see you again, and I am truly hoping that you and your families are well in every sense of the word. So I don't know about you guys, but the world feels a little bit surreal right now, doesn't it? With coronavirus being obviously the biggest threat out there, there's also the day-to-day challenge of being a home together all the time and finding ways to keep everyone occupied and really keeping fear and anxiety at bay. But I have to say, one of the most positive things that I have seen in all of this has been the way that educators have really rallied and made the shift to online teaching so quickly. I am beyond impressed with how our school district in particular, but then just watching across the country, just how their rapid response to school closures and their focus and dedication in a time that's scary for all of us has really set the tone for our kids, right? So their efforts to keep lessons rolling have given us all just what I would call an anchor in this turbulence. And and I could not be more grateful. So thank you to all you teachers out there. Your work is making a huge impact in how our whole society is handling this crisis. So kudos to you. Okay, on to our regularly scheduled programming. And today is going to be especially fun because it is part two of a conversation that I had with my good friend, author, Emily Robertson. Now, part one of this series was two shows ago in episode 69, and that's where Em and I talked about all the things about her young adult book, Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, which was released in October of last year. So that episode was all about the book itself. This episode has a little bit of a different twist. So we took the opportunity during our conversation to talk about the book and about her experience writing it and putting it out into the world. Now, Em and I are both big readers, and a big part of our discussion is about why reading, fiction especially, is so important for teens. And honestly, it's important for everyone. I wanted to tie that thread into something I talked about a couple of episodes ago, and that is teachers across all subject areas using young adult novels, current ones, in their classrooms. So at the end of this episode, I'm so excited about this. I have a valuable, actionable resource for any of you middle school teachers out there. So be sure to stay tuned to find out how to get your hands on it. But first, hang out with Em and me as we talk about lifestyles of gods and monsters. Here we go. Using this in the classroom, I think would be fascinating, especially with with anything that is looking at ancient cultures or mythology and things like that. So if you were in the classroom, and I know you've visited several, what would you do to kind of connect with your kids based on this book? So I think there's a lot of really fun opportunities to talk with 
teens, whether middle, middle schoolers or high schoolers about this right. book. I think um, the first really fun one would be, you know, if you look at the cover of the book, it has an image of a statue with a cell phone. And I think there could be such a fun project of just like looking at like, what is the tie in between, you know, what are the connections between that long ago and now? And it's actually super interesting because this, we are in a, you know, 5,000 year long conversation with these stories and this right. world. And so like last year in Vogue, there was a bunch of, you know, dresses that are goddess inspired. Um, you know, when we have, you know, our public buildings, many of them are built in a classical style. Like there's clearly something about this heroic past that keeps drawing us. But I feel like a lot of times what people want to talk about is, is the heroes, but the heroes by their nature, you're talking about dudes. And so I sort of love this as an idea to talk about so many stories that when you go back and read them in the myths are stories about <laughs> a lack of consent. I mean, they're just great. Yeah. If you look at the ancient paint, if you look at the paintings from the 1800s, they don't even, they're not even shy about it. They're like, the rape of Europa, the rape of Janet, the rape of, right. like it's right there on the title. And in that same way, like if you start to look up Ariadne, like go on Creative Commons and do a search for Ariadne. Like she's been referenced again and again and again and again. But her story has always been a story of Theseus shows up, he wants to kill the Minotaur and Ariadne falls in love instantly right. and gives him her threat. That's it. And I just felt like, wait, why? Like, why did she fall in love? Did she fall in love? Like, you realize, wait, it's her family. Like, she, and then he realized, wait, the miniature's her half-brother. Like, I think that exercise for, for students to look at, these stories, most students have been exposed to these stories many, many times. Like, between Percy Jackson and the Dodelaire and Edith Hamilton, and to suddenly say, like, wait, why would Ariadne do this? You right. know, why would, you know, pick a character, pick a female character from myth and ask yourself, well, why does she do what she does if she is a person with a fully engaged will and personality? And, you know, and, and there are a few of those in myth, but they're all presented as like a disaster. <laughs> Right. Well, and yeah. also looking at her beyond being something that's moving the plot forward. Right. right? Like, or beyond being someone's daughter or someone's girlfriend. Like, I wanted to know, like, what is Ariadne like as a person? Well, I think there's actually a really interesting conversation to be had in a classroom about, I just took the pieces of the myth. Like, I just took the Wikipedia entry. Right. And this is what I came up with. You could tell each totally different story you could have a totally different Ariadne from the same bits of story you know from the oh, same absolutely absolutely and so I think that is in itself like a really interesting conversation about you know did you know the I wasn't interested in telling a love at first sight story they have an attraction at first sight they have a connection at first sight but it's a totally different story if it is a love at first sight story I, I love those I just didn't want to tell one so I think, I think that is, you know, it's such an interesting thing. And then also we could, people could talk about the ending. I changed the ending of the myth. I switched it around because I didn't like it. Yeah. It's all made up. We can make. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You don't have to. We can change these things. You don't have to check off all the tick marks of. No, there's no grading. No there's one's no, grading. I feel no like one. that has been, when I have talked to teens, 
that has been one of the most interesting parts of the conversation is them realizing that like, they asked me like, did anybody, you know, was I going to get in trouble <laughs> changing it this much? And it's like, no, there's no, nope. <laughs> there's no grading. There's no like board of standards for, but I do, you have to admit though, like, cause I, I talk about this with my own kids with their work. And sometimes you just, you have to figure out what that teacher or professor wants and write yeah. to it, yeah. which is hard, which was what makes writing for yourself and doing writing like you're doing so amazingly freeing and wonderful is right. because you can just do what you want. There's a freedom there. That's very, but unique. you also have to deal with the fact that unlike your grading, there's a great big, like, does it work? Right. Does it, I mean, does it work for enough readers? And I feel like it's been really fun seeing comments. Like there are some people that have, you know, I try not to read reviews, but I've stumbled on a couple. And there are some people where they're so mad about how it changed the end of the myth that they like two-starred the book. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. But I, like, that's, that's, at least I got a reaction. Somebody had a reaction. They yeah. weren't, you know, and I think you can totally make the case. Like I changed the end of the myth because Ariadne being abandoned on an island wasn't the story I wanted to tell. And I think that that is a really interesting conversation. Like you could tell it where he abandoned her on the island. I just, I didn't like what that turned Theseus into. I didn't like the agency that took away from Ariadne. But right. that's a choice. Yeah. And so I think that, 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 that those conversations engaging, you know, I just feel like again and again and again, to the extent that we can get kids to engage with narrative in a way that is real and conversation and get them to understand we are participating in a conversation that's been going on for at least 5,000 years, maybe 10. And we're part of that. Like, and, and we as girls and women get to participate in it because in the ancient world, we wouldn't have been allowed to. We, right. the time that these stories were told, women weren't even allowed to be in public unveiled. So uh, like pretty great that we can, you know, yeah. participate now. And so I think there's that, but then also I think leave aside the myth altogether and just imagine like, this was a scaffold for a story I wanted to tell about the times we live in now. And I would love, I would, you know, teens, like this stuff, like I'm not a digital native. Like for teens, yeah. this stuff is just in the water. Their moms were, everybody's a teenager right now. Their Facebook history goes back to when they were infants. Like we were, right. they were being put up on Facebook as infants. They, many of their choices about how online to be weren't even, they didn't even make for themselves. They're making them now because their parents, we all, and I feel like we're all participating in a giant science experiment. We put them up before we even knew what that meant. Yeah. Like, I put pictures of my kids up on Facebook to see, like, so my parents could see them. To share, yeah. To share. Yeah. Not intending that my kids would be part of a, you know, lab experiment about facial recognition, which now they are. Thanks, mom. <laughs> but yeah. I think that, that that is another piece that I feel like, I think there's a big problem in fiction right now where people don't know how to deal with cell phones and social media and all that stuff. So they don't include it at all. And I think that I understand the impulse, but I think it's the cop out because it is. And I think you parents and teachers may not know this. There's often a thing where people have to find a reason why, like if Percy Jackson, why don't phones work? Well, phones are working Percy Jackson because 
demigods can't use technology, whatever. But I feel like part of the reason why people do that in narrative is that phones solve a lot. You know, like if your whole plot device is that like somebody's stuck at the marina and no one can get them. If you have a phone, that problem is just solved. You call them. Right. But I think there are whole different problems that arise that aren't being explored right now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like what if your phones, on, I mean, people put their phones on silent all the time. <laughs> yeah. I just think that like books, like literature and books and fiction provides a way of seeing the world and understanding the lives we're living that nothing else can do. Nonfiction can't do because what nonfiction doesn't do is subjectivity, right? Like I can't, if I'm going to tell a story, if I was going to tell the story about the Kardashians, let's say I decided to write a biography of the Kardashians, I can't get in their heads. But if I was going to go write a memoir, I can't see myself fully because I'm inside, right? Like, that's another limiting factor. Like, if you read a memoir, sure, you have a, an idea what that person thinks of themselves, but you don't know what anyone else thinks of them. Fiction's the way that we can get inside of other people and then also see how oh, they wow. function in the world. Yeah. And so I just feel like whatever tools we as parents and teachers can get to kids, whether it's graphic novels, whether it's audiobooks, whether it's film and TV, to get people engaged with fictional universes, that's more to the better. Right. And I also think it's it's why story has persisted kind of in the same form for thousands and thousands of years, because it does have that 360 view of things yeah and and again I think this is a conversation that we've had where I just think fiction is such an incredible tool to be able to have the really hard conversations with teens whether you're a teacher or a parent like you can completely take a character and deconstruct and look at choices and challenges and the way they navigate all those things. I mean, I feel like I love the idea that, you know, sometimes you'll interact with a family where it is so clear. I'm sure teachers see this all the time when you have siblings, where it is so clear that the favoritism in the family is destroying both halves of the dyad. I think favoritism destroys both halves of the dyad because the person who's put, pushed up is pushed up only at the expense of the other person. Mm-hmm. So your role is basically dependent on you pushing somebody else down. And the person who's pushed down, well, they're pushed down. Like that's... Well, and there's all kinds of right repercussions to that. Right. And so I feel like that, I mean, like if you think about this book, like let's leave aside the social media, let's leave aside the, you know, the mythology, let's leave aside everything else. It's a way to talk about how those relationships in a family can get frozen and everyone feels feels, you know, in this family, you know, her, in, in Ariadne's version of the things, her, she's her dad's favorite and her sisters are her mom's favorite. And that's the dynamic of the family. Well, what that allows to happen in this family is for the sisters to never understand the ways that the family dynamic is hurting all three of them because they're never on the same team. They're always, and so the ways that a really toxic family structure, which is true in this you know, in this story, in my story, 
the way a really toxic family structure can just persist for a really long time. And I feel like in this myth, in this story, like if Theseus hasn't shown up to blow everything up, can you, do you think it, it would ever end? Like, I think I could just see Ariadne like doing the same thing in 15 years because she doesn't, she does not see a way out. Right. And I think that's a super interesting question. Like, how would things have rolled out if Theseus had never shown up? And how well, do you I don't think family dynamics? How yeah, do you, I mean, can you, you even see a day where Ariadne decides, I'm not going to do this anymore? No. I, because well, it would leave... Something, something would have to happen where where the things that were betrayals within her family came to light. Like, there'd right. have to be some kind of revelation. But I still don't think she would leave because of her brother. Ah, true. Even if she understood, even if she woke up one day and the scales had fallen off her eyes and she totally understood everything toxic about the family she grew up in, could she leave? I'm not sure. Not without dealing with her brother in some form right. or fashion. Yeah. Which is Theseus's role. Right. Clearly. Yeah. So I just think that that is, but that's a way to, t I mean, there are families where that's true, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's not true to that extent, right. there are always things that go on in families, even the healthiest families, I think, right. you know, where there are, you know, dysfunctions. And so well, being or even think about that. a great family, like an amazing family, but just like one person got into Harvard and you have two siblings and there's not enough money to send any one person to Harvard. Right. You can't go to Harvard, like, or you go to Harvard and then you starve your siblings of their, right. You know, there's just, that's, and that is a, those are questions, you know, you have the car, but you have to drop your siblings. Like, yes. and the feeling of having the car, you know, you feel like that's not fair that I have to drive my siblings and other people don't have to drive their siblings. I mean, I know that, but those right. things feel so, so where big. the siblings, yeah. And the siblings are like, it's not fair that you have the car. Like, right. 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 And those things feel so huge when you're living them. And yet when you say them out loud, you know, they can, to someone other than your friend. Right. <laughs> and your friends are just going to be your, like, you're right. That's not fair. <laughs> right. Well, again, it goes back to seeing the whole 360. If you're just looking at the flat image and saying, ah, oh, this kid has a car and is being stubborn about taking their siblings around. Well, you only have that one piece of information. You don't know all of the other pieces that are shoring it up right yeah. so um anyway I just I feel like I feel like there's a heck of a compare and contrast oh my gosh paper. For, sure. for sure and but again beyond even the compare and contrast I just think the family dynamics in this whether it's between Ariadne, Ariadne and her parents or with her sisters or her sister's relationships with the two different you know the two parents the easiest just, relationship with his dad and grandfather yeah. Yes. Oh my God. I, they're just a, a, Icarus. Icarus and Icarus. With his dad. Like we haven't even touched on Icarus who I just feel like is such a dynamic character who I would love to hear more about. I'm just saying. Anyway, but just, just the decisions that parents have made that have placed all of these teens in these roles and that they like, and that they had no choice in, which I, I think there's, that ties back even to kids are on the internet. They had no choice. Like this is, you know. And thinking back to the mythology that the kids in the myths, they're the age of those kids in this story. Like these stories, yeah. like, you know. They weren't 20 year olds. They were teens. They were teens. Yeah. They were teens. Like that, like that part about, you know, when, if you, um, if people read my book and they say, oh, it reminds me of the Hunger Games. It's right. because 
when Suzanne Collins was thinking about writing The Hunger Games, she was looking at this myth. She was looking at the the tributes that came from Athens, the 17-year-old. I I did not yes. know that. Okay. So she was watching Survivor. She was watching the Gulf War, you know, the televised war. Right. And then she started thinking about the the kids, the seven boys and seven girls sent from Athens to die facing the Minotaur as tribute. Their tribute. I mean, that it's right there in the. Yeah. It's the reason they're not called tributes in mind. <laughs> <laughs> because right. they were sent to Athens as tribute because because Crete had conquered Athens Athens. and as payment Crete demanded the teenagers be sent to be sacrificed to the mentor and they're 17 like that was just the understanding so interesting well and then my mind goes a couple places one where did this originate like who how did it how has it endured for all these centuries and who you know what was the purpose and the point and all the things, you know, and what's the kernel of truth that's in it, right? Because stories always start with that. Um, so that, number one. And then number two, I'm imagining like an a crazy amazing like school project to take a figure from mythology who's not a hero and flesh out their story. Like that would be so incredible. Well, if you go, it's so fun. Go to, if you go to, let's say go to Wikipedia, there's a couple different really fun sources. One of which is the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Yes. The list of people who were continue, considered to be Argonauts is really long. Like there's like 50 of them. There's no way it really could have been the 50. Um, okay. Oh, and there's a couple really great characters to check out. Like Atalanta, it's, you can either say Atalanta or At- Atlanta. She is one of the few um, few girls that gets her own story. Um, and she's great. And she was considered to be one of the Argonauts, which is pretty incredible. And then um, if you just look at those lists and then also the list, there are some lists of who might've been among the tributes that got sent. Oh. Because they're... You know, the thing about mythology that people don't really understand is these stories don't come to us in one book. There's not one book that, you know, showed up. What happened was there are a bunch of different collections. They show up in a bunch of different places, but small, like you'll see like a little bit of this story here and a little bit of that story there. And then you have the all the tragedies of the fifth century and those kind of tell some of these stories and some of them are lost and some of them have survived. But then also in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are actually set two generations after this story. Okay. So that in the mythological universe, the people that went to the Trojan War were the grandchildren of this Theseus Ariadne generation. Okay. So in the mythological sort of imagination. Okay. So you see little blips there. And then and then you just see a lot of Roman writers who took the Greek myths and then retold them in their own way so and in your question about where did this come from they're pretty sure from archaeological uh, evidence that crete the island of crete was the dominant power in the mediterranean 
before Athens became the dominant power in the Mediterranean. And Crete had a um, a bull cult. Oh. So it's like all about, you know, that their religion was built all around bulls and the sacrifice of bulls. And so it's entirely possible that they were taking some form of tribute because human sacrifice was practiced all the way up into the Roman period. So yeah, no, it's just, it's kind of nuts. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating and a million stories. I mean, the last, the last human sacrifice took place. The last recorded human sacrifice that the Romans did took place after the birth of Christ. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, not the, not like the actual, like we're going to sacrifice a person like on a altar to get the gods to do what we want. Cause mostly they did animals by then, but there were a couple times when they were really losing at war where they tried it out the the old, you know, sacrifice a girl. So anyway, it's just kind of, and that, I feel like that too is something where we feel this kinship to them from their stories, but then you hit something like that and you go, what? Right, right. But then I always ask myself, what are the things about us? They would think like, oh, that totally makes sense. But women with other with uncovered faces, woo! <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Although yeah. there are still some places with that. So. That's true. That's true. And so yeah. I just think it's such an interesting, interesting thought. What things are stable about what it means to be human, and what things are are not stable? What things are are fluid? And, and I think that's a, just another really interesting question that I ask myself all the time, like, you know, reading, whether it's reading Shakespeare, whether it's reading these, or whether it's reading something that was written 20 years ago, like, what are the things that we consider to be, like, immutably true, and then you find out, like, well, 100 years ago, they did not think this thing was true about people. Such as, like, I'm curious. Oh, there's all kinds of things, like, with respect to violence, you know, like, we'll look at something as not a thing a person would do. And yet, you know, you think about people used to just go to hangings. Like, yeah, they just went there. It was just like- Or to gladiator competition. Right, good family fun. But then I feel like there are other things that just like stay with you. Like I remember reading some of the poems, I'm sure English teachers read them, but Anne Anne Hathaway's poems that she wrote, she was one of the earliest settlers of the US and she writes about the loss of a child. And you're just like, it just guts you. Now, the first time I read it, I read it. It didn't gut me because I was a kid. But later on, you just think like, oh, God, like that, that's the same. Yeah. That's the same. You know, so it's just, it's just super fascinating. Or the loss of a parent, you know, it's just super fascinating the ways that the recognizable humanity that we have tying back to these people over such a distance that we're all like recognizably the same. The same. Somehow. Yeah. yeah. So. Thank you so much, Em, for being here today. I love it. I know we'll have you back on again because I love talking all things story and um, just thinking about all the different ways that our world is happening right now. So thank yeah. you. I appreciate it's a crazy it time. So and I know my listeners will appreciate it. And I just would like to encourage everyone to go out and get Em's book, Lifestyles of gods and monsters and i will have a link to it in my show notes so oh make sure to tell everyone that my name does not have a t in it oh m's name does not have a t in it (laughs) robertson robertson (laughs) and if you want to follow me on instagram i'm robertson emily m robertson emily m and i'll put a link to that in my show notes as well okay 
Thank you so much, Em, for sharing with us today. And I have to say, I love the way you challenged us to dive deeper into the world of myths and ask great questions to imagine a bigger story for all the characters. Okay, if you are a middle school teacher or you know someone who is, pay close attention here. I've taken Em's book, Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, and I've created lesson plans for several subject areas, ELA, art, math, physical education, science, and social studies. Now, I aimed the plans at eighth graders, and I used Texas's Essential Knowledge and Skills Curriculum Standards to build out the plans. And you can download those at theishgirl.com forward slash lifestyles lesson plans. So again, that's theishgirl.com forward slash lifestyles lesson plans. And also, drumroll please, I will be hosting a Facebook Live session on Tuesday night, March 24th, and I'll be taking those lesson plans and walking through them with you guys, and I'll be giving you the rubrics, the handouts, and the other resources that you need to implement those plans. So make sure you mark that on your calendar and download those plans. And again, you can find them at theishgirl.com forward slash lifestyles lesson plans. You can also find a link to it and to the other resources that Em and I talked about in my show notes at theishgirl.com forward slash EP71. It is my passion to serve as many teachers and parents as I can this year. And you guys can help me out with that. I would love for you guys to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That really does make it easier for others to find these resources too. And if you're really feeling the love, it would be awesome if you would leave a review for me. Who knows, you might be featured on a future episode. Okay, thanks again, friends, for hanging out with me today from an ish girl who cannot believe how bizarre life is right now in the midst of this coronavirus lockdown. I am so grateful to be in the middle of it together.